This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration's push for mitigating what it believes is a changing climate is moving more deeply into procurement. That means contractors selling pretty much everything to the government must start thinking about how to present their products as climate friendly. We get more now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And this climate idea is one of many that seem to be getting tossed into the procurement criteria mix these days, even for things that never had that type of criteria. What do you see going on? Tom, I think what we're seeing here is climate-friendly acquisition, green procurement, whatever other name in this neck of the woods you want to call it is a top priority for the Biden administration. They've been very clear that as far as acquisition policy goes, climate change, climate-friendly acquisition is a top three or four priority for them. And you're right. It's really going to transcend everything that the government does from some of the more obvious targets like turning the federal fleet into a 100% or nearly 100% electric fleet of cars and trucks to green buildings and smart use of building space, probably reduced building space overall. But it goes beyond that, Tom. It goes into uh, everyday contractor supply chains, whether you're providing professional services and government's going to want to know what you're doing to be green friendly in your business, but also what your partners are doing, what your subcontractors are doing to be green friendly. And obviously, if you're a product supplier, uh, how are those products featuring green features? Are there things about them that are energy efficient that can be promoted? Is there recycling available at the end of life? Real cradle to grave type analysis of the eco-friendliness of what contractors are providing. And so what does that going to entail, especially on the ends of product vendors? Suppose I'm selling, I'm just making this up, at pencils to the government. Well, pencils have wood and graphite and metal and rubber and the eraser and paint and ink on the stamped name on the pencil. There's a lot of commodities <laughs> right. that go into a right. pencil. Right. And I think there's been a book about the supply chain for the pencil and how much industrial activity is required to result in a 25-cent pencil. So do you feel contractors are going to have to look into their own supply chains and into their own manufacturing practices or say we have a new energy-efficient generator for our building or whatever the case is where we stamp out pencils, that kind of thing? Tom, I think it's absolutely going to get to that degree of specificity. We've already seen the General Services Administration proactively promote the eco-friendliness of products that they have on their website, Uh, even though that's not necessarily a criteria for contract award. GSA has taken the initiative to self-sort products on GSA Advantage uh, in terms of their eco-friendliness and also, by the way, for their socioeconomic status. So if you're a small, small disadvantaged business, you get to be seen first as well. But as far as the green supply chain goes, yes, I think that uh, the government's going to want to know how much energy went into creating that pencil. What was the waste? Uh, Are you uh, manufacturing the pencil in such a way that you can recycle the byproducts of that? Uh, At the end of the pencil life, what can be broken down and recycled? Really, what's the true cost? environmentally of that production. So how does that get translated? I'm kind of asking this rhetorically, but contracting officers make individual decisions. And right now there's no formal language either in the FAR that I'm aware of or in standard contract clauses 
So if the government wants that type of criterion to go into a procurement, they've got a lot of groundwork to do, which could take years. A lot of groundwork to do, Tom, and a lot of holes in the commercial sector. By that, I mean not every product has an uh, industry standard for, for greenness or environmental friendliness. Some do. Furniture, for example, they can have testing. They can show their environmental friendliness for certain factors. But a whole host of other commercial items that the government buys may only have limited data on what a green product might look like and and very few standard definitions of what that actually means. So we're talking about contractors having to supply additional data to contracting officers, contracting officers who aren't trained in being able to discern the eco-friendliness of what's being provided. Uh, They also have other things to do in terms of awarding contracts. Gathering and providing the additional data is obviously going to be a burden on contractors, but it's also almost like they're going to have to make the case for the contracting officer that says, hey, this is why we feel our products and solutions are eco-friendly and will have a positive impact on climate change. Don't misconstrue this. I'm as climate-friendly as the next person. We all have to live on the planet. We have to also, Tom, I think, put some of this in a little bit of perspective in terms of the added cost and burden this is going to put on the acquisition system. I'm already holding my breath half the time to lower my CO2 output. We're speaking (laughs) with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And you were at the Coalition for Federal Procurement Conference, your old stomping ground run by now by Roger Waldron. And there was a federal official that said, if you don't want to do all this, maybe you should not be in federal contracting, which didn't sound exactly to your ears like lowering the barriers to federal contracting. It's not lowering the barriers to market entry, Tom, but it is refreshingly candid. Uh, And really, uh, I think that He was saying what an awful lot of people are thinking and what a lot of contractors have been experiencing. We hear a lot of rhetoric about lowering barriers to market entry and the government wanting to make this particularly a friendly marketplace for smaller businesses. Small disadvantaged business participation is another top three issue for the Biden administration. At the same time, we have more green friendly requirements, but we also have things like CMMC, like Section 889, where did your telecommunications come from? Uh, We have uh, a whole host of things, you know, we're going to be changing around Made in America rules. How's that going to affect the Buy American Act? How's that going to affect you as a contractor? We also want to look at your supply chain and we want to have visibility to make sure that you can provide the uh, the government the things you say you can provide, particularly in a surge capacity. All of these are special government-only requirements, Tom, requirements that inherently raise the bar to market entry. So I think it's more accurate to say that the government uh, has basically three categories of contractors. One, they have the very large companies that they know they can't live without. Uh, They are an integral part of the government business, integral part of the government supply chain, and they perform services Uh, that the government can't provide for itself. Uh, The second group was favored small businesses, whether it's small disadvantage, veteran-owned small business, whatever it is. Uh, These are somewhat protected small businesses, but ironically only somewhat because not all of the requirements uh, 
are they exempt from? You know, the small businesses still have to follow a lot of the rules that everybody else does, but they're somewhat protected. And the third group is this larger group that's somewhere in the middle, Tom, that may not always have the wherewithal to adopt to the new rules, but they don't have the small business size status that protects them from uh, all of the rules and all the competition. They're just kind of there. And I think the government really says, look, you all are going to be pushed to the sidelines. We need to do business with these very large companies. We want to do business with small businesses. Everybody else is kind of out there to fend for themselves. And I think really when you strip away what the representative from GSA said last week, that's what he was saying. And again, whether you like it or not, uh, you can't say it wasn't direct and it wasn't honest. Be green or be square, I guess. Larry, <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. A great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh, who had whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.